Chapter Nine of Harrington by Maria Edgeworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jenny Bradshaw. Chapter Nine. Mowbray was curious, he said, to know how the Jewess would look by daylight, and he begged that he might accompany me to see the pictures. As I had told him that I had permission to take with me any of my friends, I could not refuse his request, though I must own that I would rather have gone without him. I was a little afraid of his raillery and of the quickness of his observation during our walk however he with address with that most irresistible kind of address which assumes an air of perfect frankness and cordiality contrived to dissipate my feelings of embarrassment and by the time we got to mr montenero's door i rejoiced that i had with me a friend and supporter a handsome house a splendid house this said mowbray looking up at the front as we waited for admission if the inside agree with the out faith harrington your jewish heiress will soon be heard of on change and at court too you'll see make haste and secure your interest in her i advise you to our great disappointment the servant told us that neither mr nor miss montenero was at home but orders had been left with a young man of his to attend me and my company at this moment i heard a well-known voice on the stairs and jacob poor jacob appeared joy flashed in his face at the sight of me he flew downstairs and across the hall exclaiming it is it is my own good mr harrington but he started back at the sight of mowbray and his whole countenance and manner changed in an embarrassed voice he began to explain why mr montenero was not at home that he had waited yesterday in hopes of seeing me at the appointed time till my note of apology had arrived I had not positively named any day for my visit, and Mr. Montenero had particular business that obliged him to go out this morning, but that he would be back in an hour. "'Meantime, sir, as Mr. Montenero has desired,' said Jacob, "'I shall have the honour of showing the pictures to you and your friend.' It was not until he came to the words, "'Your friend,' that Jacob recollected to bow to Lord Mowbray, and even then it was a stiff-necked bow. Mowbray, contrary to his usual assurance, looked a little embarrassed, yet spoke to Jacob as an old acquaintance. Jacob led us through several handsome, I might say splendid, apartments to the picture-room. "'Good, good,' whispered Mowbray as we went along, till the moment we entered the picture-room. Then, making a sudden stop and start of recollection, and pulling out his watch, he declared that he had till that moment forgotten an indispensable engagement, that he must come some other day to see these charming pictures. He begged that I would settle that for him. He was excessively sorry, but go he must, and off he went immediately. The instant he was out of sight, Jacob seemed relieved from the disagreeable constraint under which he laboured, and his delight was manifest when he had me to himself. I conceived that Jacob still felt resentment against Mowbray, for the old quarrel at school. I was surprised at this, and in my own mind I blamed Jacob. I have always found it the best way to speak openly, and to go to the bottom of mysteries and quarrels at once. So turning to Jacob, I asked him whether, in right of our former acquaintance, I might speak to him with the freedom of one who heartily wished him well. The tears came into his eyes, and he could only say, Speak, pray, and thank you, sir. Then, Jacob, said I, I thought you could not for such a number of years bear malice for a schoolboy's offence, and yet your manner just now to Lord Mowbray, am I mistaken? Set me right if I am. Did I misinterpret your manner, Jacob? No, sir, said he, looking up in my face with his genuine expression of simplicity and openness. No, sir, you do not mistake, nor misinterpret Jacob's manner. You know him too well, and his manner tells too plainly. You do not misinterpret the feeling, but you mistake the cause and since you are so kind as to desire me to set you right i will do so but it is too long a story to tell while you are standing 
not at all i am interested go on i should not said jacob be worthy of this interest this regard which it is joy to my very heart to see that you still feel for me i should not be worthy in the least of it if i could bear malice so many years for a schoolboy's offence no mr harrington the schoolboy young lord is forgotten but long since that time since this young lord has been grown into a man and an officer at gibraltar the recollection of whatever it was that happened at gibraltar seemed to come at this instant so full upon jacob's feelings that he could not go on he took up his story further back he reminded me of the time when we had parted at cambridge he was then preparing to go to gibraltar to assist in keeping a store there for the brother and partner of his friend and benefactor the london jeweller mr manessa who had ventured a very considerable part of his fortune upon this speculation about that time many jews had enriched themselves at gibraltar by keeping stores for the troops and during the siege it was expected that it would be a profitable business mr manessa's store under jacob's care went on prosperously till the day when lord mowbray arrived at gibraltar with a regiment of which young as he was he had been appointed lieutenant-colonel he recognised me the first time we met i saw he was grown into a fine-looking officer and indeed mr harrington i saw him without bearing the least malice for any little things that had passed which i thought as you say were only schoolboy follies but in a few minutes i found to my sorrow that he was not changed in mind towards me his first words at meeting me in the public streets were so are you here young shylock what brings you to gibraltar you are of the tribe of gad i think thou wandering jew lord mowbray's servants heard and caught their lord's witticism the sergeants and soldiers repeated the colonel's words and the nickname spread through the regiment and through the garrison wherever i turned i heard them echoed poor jacob was called young shylock by some and by others the wandering jew it was a bitter jest and soon became bitter earnest the ignorant soldiers really believed me to be that jew whom christians most abominate the common people felt a superstitious dread of me the mothers charged their children to keep out of my way and if i met them in the streets they ran away and hid themselves you may think sir i was not happy i grew melancholy and my melancholy countenance they said was a proof that i was what i was said to be i was ashamed to show my face i lost all relish for my food and began to pine away my master noticed it and he was sorry for me he took my part and spoke to the young lord who thereupon grew angry and high words passed the young lord cursed at my master for an insolent jew dog as to me his lordship swore that he knew me from a boy that he had known enough of my tricks and that of course for that i must bear him malice and he vowed i should not bear it to him for nothing from that day there was a party raised against us in the garrison lord mowbray's soldiers of course took his part and those who were most his favourites abused us the most they never passed our store any day without taunt and insult ever repeating the names their colonel had given me it was hard to stand still and mute and bear everything without reply but i was determined not to bring my master into any quarrel so i bore all presently the time came when there was great distress for provisions in the garrison then the cry against the jews was terrible but i do not wish to say more of what followed than is necessary to my own story you must have heard sir of the riot at gibraltar the night when the soldiery broke into the spirit stores i had read accounts of some such thing in the newspapers of the day i had heard of excesses committed by the soldiery who were enraged against the jew merchants and i recollected some story of the soldiers having roasted a pig before a jew's door with a fire made of the jew's own cinnamon that fire sir said jacob was made before our door 
it was kindled by a party of lord mowbray's soldiers who madly intoxicated with the spirits they had taken from the stores came in the middle of that dreadful night to our house and with horrible shouts called upon my master to give up to them the wandering jew my master refusing to do this they burst open his house pillaged wasted destroyed and burnt all before our eyes we lost everything i do not mean to say we i poor jacob had little to lose it is not of that though it was my all it is not of that i speak but my master from a rich man in one hour he became a beggar the fruit of all his labour lost nothing left for his wife or children i never can forget his face of despair by that firelight i think i see it now he did not recover it sir he died of a broken heart he was the best and kindest of masters to me and can you wonder now mr harrington or do you blame jacob that he could not look upon that lord with a pleased eye nor smile when he saw him again i did not blame jacob i liked him for the warmth of his feeling for his master when he was a little composed however i represented that his affection and pity might have raised his indignation too strongly and might have made him impute to lord mowbray a greater share than he really had in their misfortunes lord mowbray was a very young officer at that time too young to be trusted with the command of men in such difficult circumstances his lordship had been exceedingly blamable in giving even in jest the nicknames which had prejudiced his soldiers against an innocent individual but i could not conceive that he had a serious design to injure nor could he as i observed possibly foresee the fatal consequences that afterwards ensued as to the excesses of his soldiers for their want of discipline he was answerable but jacob should recollect the distress to which the soldiers had been previously reduced and the general prejudice against those who were supposed to be the cause of the scarcity lord mowbray might be mistaken like others but as to his permitting their outrages or directing them against individual jews whom he disliked i told jacob it was impossible for me to believe it why did not the jew merchant state his complaint to the general who as jacob had allowed punished all the soldiers who had been convicted of committing outrages if Lord Mowbray had been complained of by Mr. Manessa, a court-martial would have been held, and if the charges had been substantiated, his title of colonel or lord would have availed him nothing. He would have been broke. Jacob said his poor master, who was ruined and in despair, thought not of courts-martial. Perhaps he had no legal proofs. Perhaps he dreaded, with reason, the popular prejudice in the garrison, and dared not, being a Jew, appear against a Christian officer how that might have been jacob said he did not know all he knew was that his master was very ill and that he returned to england soon afterwards but still argued i if lord mowbray had not been brought to a court-martial if it had been known among his brother officers that he had been guilty of such unofficer-like conduct no british officer would have kept company with him i was therefore convinced that jacob must have been misinformed and deceived by exaggerated reports and prejudiced by the warmth of his own feelings for the loss of his master jacob listened to me with a look of incredulity yet as if with a wish to believe that i was right he softened gradually he struggled with his feelings he knew he said that it was our christian precept to forgive our enemies a very good precept but was it easy did all christians find it easy to put it in practice and you mr harrington you who can have no enemies how can you judge jacob ended by promising with a smile that he would show me that a jew could forgive then, eager to discard the subject, he spoke of other things. I thanked him for his having introduced me to Mr. Israel Lyons. He was delighted to hear of the advantage I had derived from the introduction at Cambridge, and of its having led to my acquaintance with Mr. Montenero.
He had been informed of my meeting Miss Montenero at the theatre, and he told me of his hopes and fears when he heard her say she had been assisted by a gentleman of the name of Harrington. I did not venture, however, to speak much of Miss Montenero, but I expatiated on the pleasure I had in Mr. Montenero's conversation, and the advantages I hoped to derive from cultivating his society. Jacob, always disposed to affection and gratitude more than to suspicion or revenge, seemed happy to be relieved from the thoughts of Lord Mowbray, and he appeared inspired with fresh life and spirit when he talked of Mr. Montenero and his daughter. He mentioned their kindness to the widow and children of his deceased master, and of Mr. Montenero's goodness to the surviving brother and partner, the London jeweller, Mr. Manessa, Jacob's first benefactor. The Manessas had formerly been settled in Spain at the time Mr. Montenero had lived there, and when he was in some difficulties with the Inquisition, they had in some way essentially served him, either in assisting his escape from the country, or in transmitting his property. Jacob was not acquainted with the particulars, but he knew that Mr. Montenero was most grateful for the obligation, whatever it had been, and now that he was rich, and the Manessas in distress, he seemed to think he could never do enough for them. Jacob became first acquainted, as he told me, with Mr. Montenero, in consequence of his connection with this family. The widow had represented him as being a faithful friend, and the two children of his deceased master were fond of him. Mr. Montenero's attachment to the Manessas immediately made him take notice of Jacob. Jacob told me that he was to go to their house in the city, and to take charge of their affairs as soon as they could be settled, and that Mr. Montenero had promised, if possible, to obtain for him a share in the firm of the surviving brother and partner. In the meantime, Jacob was employed by Mr. Montenero in making out catalogues of his books and pictures, arranging his library and cabinet of medals, etc., to all which he was fully competent. Jacob said he rejoiced that these occupations would keep him a little while longer at Mr. Montenero's, as he should there have more frequent opportunities of seeing me than he could hope for when he would be at the other end of the town. Besides, added he, I don't know how I shall ever be able to do without the kindness Mr. Montenero shows me, and as for Miss Montenero, Jacob's countenance expanded, and his voice was by turns softened into tenderness and raised to enthusiasm, as he again spoke of the father and daughter, and when my mind was touched and warmed by his panegyric of Berenice, pronounced with the true eloquence of the heart, she, leaning on her father's arm, entered the room. The dignified simplicity, the graceful modesty of her appearance, so unlike the fashionable forwardness or the fashionable bashfulness, or any of the various airs of affectation which I had seen in Lady Anne Mowbray and her class of young ladies, charmed me perhaps the more from contrast and from the novelty of the charm. There was a timid sensibility in her countenance when I spoke to her, which joined to the feminine reserve of her whole manner, the tone of her voice, and the propriety and elegance of the very little she said, pleased me inexpressibly. I wished only that she had said more. However, when her father spoke, it seemed to be almost the same as if she spoke herself. Her sympathy with him appeared so strongly. He began by speaking of Jacob. He was glad to find that I was the Mr. Harrington, whom Jacob had been so eager to see. It was evident that they knew all the good that grateful young man could tell of me, and the smile which I received from the father and daughter at this instant would have overpaid me for any obligations I could have conferred. Jacob retired, observing that he had taken up all the time with the history of his own private affairs, and that I had not yet seen any of the pictures. Mr. Montenero immediately led me to one of Murillo's, regretting that he had not the pleasure of showing it to my mother. I began to speak of her sorrow at not being able to venture out. I made some apology, but whatever it was, I am sure I did not, I could not, pronounce it well. 
Mr. Montenero bowed his head courteously, removed his eyes from my face, and glanced for one moment at Miss Montenero with a look of regret, quickly succeeded by an expression in his countenance of calm and proud independence. He was sorry, he said, that he could not have the honour of seeing Mrs. Harrington, the pleasure of presenting his daughter to her. I perceived that he was aware of what I had hoped had escaped his penetration, my mother's prepossession against him and his daughter. I saw that he attributed it to a general prejudice against his race and religion, and I perceived that this hurt his feelings much, though his pride or his philosophy quickly repressed his sensibility. He never afterwards spoke of my mother, never hoped to see her another day, nor hoped even that the cold which had prevented her from venturing out would be better. I was the more vexed and ashamed that I had not been able to bring my mother with me. I turned the conversation as quickly as I could to Mr. Israel Lyons. I observed by what Mr. Montenero said, that from the information he had received from Mr. Lyons and from Jacob, he was thoroughly aware of my early prejudice and antipathy to the Jews. He observed to his daughter that Mr. Harrington had double merit in his present liberality, since he had conquered what it is so difficult, scarcely possible, completely to conquer, an early prepossession, fostered perhaps by the opinion of many who must have had great influence on his mind. Through this compliment I thought I saw in Mr. Montenero's, and still more in the timid countenance of his daughter, a fear that I might relapse, and that these early prepossessions, which were so difficult, scarcely possible, completely to conquer, might recur. I promised myself that I should soon convince them that they were mistaken, if they had formed any such notion, and I was flattered by the fear, as it implied that I had inspired some interest. We went on with the pictures. Not being a connoisseur, though fond of the arts, I was relieved and pleased to find that Mr. Montenero had none of the jargon of connoisseurship. While his observations impressed me with a high idea of his taste and judgment, they gave me some confidence in my own. I was delighted to find that I understood and could naturally and truly agree with all he said, and that my untutored preferences were what they ought to be, according to the right rules of art and science. In short, I was proud to find that my taste was in general the same as his and his daughter's. What pleased me far more than Mr. Montenero's taste was the liberality and the enlargement of mind I saw in all his opinions and sentiments. There was in him a philosophic calmness and moderation. His reason seemed to have worked against great natural sensibility, perhaps susceptibility, till this calm had become the unvarying temper of his mind. I fancied also that I perceived a constant care in him to cultivate the same temper in his daughter and to fortify her against the extreme sensibility to the opinion of others, and that diffidence of herself to which, as I recollected, he had formerly adverted. After having admired some of Murillo's pictures, we came to one which I, unpractised as I was in judging of painting, immediately perceived to be inferior. "'You are quite right,' said Mr. Montenero, "'it is inferior to Murillo, and the sudden sense of this inferiority absolutely broke the painter's heart.' This picture is by a painter of the name of Castillo, who had thought comfortably well of himself till he saw the masterpieces of Murillo's genius. Castillo surveyed them for some time in absolute silence, then turning away, exclaimed, Castillo is no more, and soon Castillo was no more. From that moment he pined away, and shortly afterwards died, not from envy, continued Mr. Montenero. No, he was a man of mild, amiable temper, incapable of envy but he fell a victim to excessive sensibility, a dangerous though not a common vice of character. "'Weakness, not vice, I hope,' I heard Miss Montenero say in a low voice. The father answered with a sigh. 
that however cannot be called a virtue which incapacitates from the exercise of independent virtue and which as you find not only depresses genius but may extinguish life itself mr montenero then turned to me and with composure went on speaking of the pictures ever since i knew i was to see these i had been studying cumberland's lives of the spanish painters and this i honestly told mr montenero when he complimented me upon my knowing all the names and anecdotes to which he alluded he smiled so did his daughter and he was so good as to say that he liked me better for telling him this so candidly than if i had known all that the connoisseurs and anecdote mongers living or dead had ever said or written we came to a picture by alonzo cano who excelling in architecture statuary and painting had been called the michelangelo of spain he at least was not deficient in a comfortably good opinion of himself mr montenero said i is not it recorded of cano that having finished a statue of st antonio de padua for a spanish counsellor the tasteless lawyer and niggardly devotee hesitated to pay the artist his price observing that cano by his own account had been only twenty-five days about it the counsellor sat down with stupid self-sufficiency to calculate that at a hundred pistoles divided by twenty-five days the artist would be paid at a higher rate than he was himself for the exercise of his talents wretch talk to me of your talents exclaimed the enraged artist i have been fifty years learning how to make this statue in twenty-five days and as he spoke cano dashed his statue to pieces on the pavement of the academy the affrighted counsellor fled from the house with the utmost precipitation concluding that the man who was bold enough to destroy a saint would have very little remorse in destroying a lawyer happily for cano this story did not reach the ears of the inquisition said mr montenero or he would have been burnt alive mr montenero then pointed out some exquisite pieces by this artist and spoke with enthusiasm of his genius i perceived some emotion of which i could not guess the cause in the countenance of his daughter she seemed touched by what her father said about this painter or his pictures mr montenero concluded his panegyric on cano's genius by saying besides being a great genius we are told that he was very religious and some few peculiarities excepted very charitable you are very charitable i am sure said miss montenero looking at her father and smiling i am not sure that i could speak so charitably of that man a sigh quickly followed her smile and i now recollected having heard or read that this painter bore such an antipathy to the jews that he considered every touch of theirs as contamination and if he accidentally came in contact with them would cast off and give away his clothes forbidding the servant to whom he gave them on any account to wear them miss montenero saw that i recollected to what she alluded that i had a just feeling of the benevolent magnanimity of her father's character this raised me i perceived in the daughter's opinion though scarcely a word passed at the moment yet i fancied that we felt immediately better acquainted i ventured to go and stand beside her from doing which i had hitherto been prevented by i know not what insurmountable difficulty or strange spell we were both opposite to a spanish copy of guido's aurora surgeons i observed that the flame of the torch borne by the winged boy representing lucifer points westward in a direction contrary to that in which the manes of the horses the drapery of apollo and that of the dancing hours are blown which seemed to me to be a mistake berenice said that guido had taken this picture from ovid's description and that he had with great art represented by the very circumstance to which i objected the swiftness of the motion with which the chariot was driven forward the current of the morning wind blowing from the east was represented by the direction of the hair of lucifer and of the flame of his torch 
while the rapidity of the motion of the chariot was such that notwithstanding the eastern wind which would otherwise have blown them towards the west the manes of the horses and the drapery of the figures were driven backwards by the resistance of the air against which they were hurried she then repeated in a pleasing but timid manner in support of her opinion these two beautiful lines of addison's translation with winged speed outstrips the eastern wind and leaves the breezes of the morn behind i need not say that i was delighted with this criticism and with the modest manner in which it was spoken but i could not honestly help remarking that to the description immediately alluded to in ovid addison had added the second beautiful line and leaves the breezes of the morn behind mr montenero looked pleased and said to me it is very true in the immediate passage describing the chariot of the sun issuing from the gates of heaven this line is not in the original but if you look further back in the fable you will find that the idea is still more strongly expressed in the latin than in the english it was with the utmost difficulty that i at last forced myself away nor was i in the least aware of the unconscionable length of my visit what particularly pleased me in the conversation of miss montenero was that she had none of those fashionable phrases which fill every vacuity of sense and which level all distinctions of understanding there was none of that commonplace stuff which passes for conversation in the world and which we hear and repeat till we are equally tired of others and of ourselves there were besides in her manner and countenance indications of perfect sweetness of temper a sort of feminine gentleness and softness which art cannot feign nor affectation counterfeit a gentleness which while it is the charm of female manners is perfectly consistent with true spirit and with the higher or the stronger qualities of the mind all i had seen of miss montenero in this first visit inspired me with the most ardent desire to see more here was a woman who could fill my whole soul who could at once touch my heart and my imagination i felt inspired with new life i had now a great object a strong and lively interest in existence at parting mr montenero shook hands with me which he said he knew was the english mode of showing kindness he expressed an earnest but proudly guarded wish that i might be so circumstanced and so inclined as to allow him the pleasure he much desired of cultivating my acquaintance End of chapter nine recording by jenny bradshaw